35 days. Does anybody know? What's in 35 days? Easter. Easter is in 35 days. Now, I recognize we're a Protestant church and we don't, you, we don't practice some of the same things that perhaps uh, some of the high churches might do. Uh, but one thing that I do personally practice, and we've shared this before, is I do practice the Lenten season. Uh, as it's a 40-day uh, preparation to the day of greatest celebration. And so Ash Wednesday begins that. Uh, Fat Tuesday, you know, some of you may not understand that's actually connected to religiosity. <laughs> uh, some of you might think that's just a New Orleans thing, but uh, that's a very ha heavy Catholic town. So they celebrate before they fast for 40 days from whatever it is they've chosen. And so on Ash Wednesday, I began a uh, fast from sweets and uh, also soda and so uh, you know I, I'm usually a rock when I commit to something like that well last night I'm at my in-laws and of all times my mother-in-law made my favorite cake <laughs> with icing that she makes and I was just like uh, and I'm looking at her and she goes oh this is Lenten season let me guess I've made something you can't have and she smiles with delight <laughs> So I, I don't know what that means, but uh, so everybody else is having cake, and I'm just smiling, just acting like I'm supposed to be the reverent one in the room. But uh, inside, I was like, man, I would love a piece of that cake. Uh, but anyway, and you might wonder, why, why practice Lenten season? I found I was challenged with this uh, by my pastor at my previous church, and uh, and so I I decided I'd practice it one year where I would choose something to uh, not partake in for 40 days. And what I found is that I became more mindful of the coming greatest day of celebration, so that by the time Easter came, I was excited, not to indulge in what I had been uh, away from, but rather just my mind had become filled because there's so many touch points throughout the day that that now is brought to mind. I am choosing to not participate in something because Easter's coming. And when you do that, it begins to build anticipation. So even though, again, we may not be a Catholic church, and we may not already be beyond Ash Wednesday, you could begin today and begin something to begin to prepare your heart for the coming Easter celebration. And so just an encouragement to you to consider uh, something that you might want to fast from. I've, I've done no bread for 40 days. I've done no caffeine for 40 days. And no, I didn't get the jitters. Uh, but uh, did no caffeine for 40 days. I've done many different things. Some people have gone on TV fasts uh, where they don't watch TV for 40 days. Many things you could do that could trigger a thought to begin to prepare your heart for the greatest day of celebration. And so this isn't a legalistic thing, it's a preparational thing. And that's consistent with scripture. There are many things they did through their festivals to prepare their heart for what lies ahead. And so that's just uh, a free encouragement. You do not have to tithe for that word that I just gave there. All right. Having said that, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And you already heard from Ken that we're going to be looking at the Mary and Martha moment. But this isn't the focus on Mary and Martha. This is a focus on Jesus. This series is looking how Jesus handled life. 
how he lived it, how he modeled it, how he interacted with people. And most of life deals with relationships. And there was a relational moment with Mary and Martha that can really relate to pretty much all of us in some facet or form. Now, many of us that know this story would immediately, immediately equate it with worry uh, and being indulged in worry or anxiety. And, and there's truth that that's related to the text, but uh, I'm going to make a, um, a case that there's actually a greater route to learn from this story. But having said that, I think to get to the root of this, we need to ask the things that genuinely cause us worry to get to why are those things the things we worry about. So I looked up what are the top 10 things that people worry about in American culture. This is not through the rest of the world because if you go to different countries, this list would be different. So this is in America, in our culture, what are the top 10 things we worry about? Well, I'm going to go from 10 to 1. The 10th item is our family's safety. Our family's safety. Number nine, our appearance. We regularly are looking in the mirror. I mean, how many mirrors do you have in your home? Think about it. Could you count it up? How many mirrors you have in your home? And you got to count the ones in your drawers too. So there's a lot of mirrors in our home because we're very caught up with, the, with appearance. And then uh, how about not waking up to our alarm, number eight. <laughs> On a day like today, right, where things are changing. And, and it's, I, my, I use my phone to wake me up in the morning, and that automatically calibrates at 2 a.m. when they make the time change. But I still don't trust it. And so I'm trying to figure out ways that I can make sure I don't miss Sunday morning. That would be really embarrassing. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and <laughs> I will, <laughs> I'll, I'm going to, confession, uh, about three years ago here at LAFC on the fall time change, I showed up a full hour early. Because I didn't change the time, and I didn't do it through my phone. And so I was here, and like, where is everybody at? So far, I haven't done it on this Sunday. This one would be the worst one. So having said that, so not waking up our alarms, number eight. Number seven is missing a plane or bus. And if you're in Lancaster County, a buggy. <laughs> oh, I missed my buggy. I'm going to have to wait for the next one. How about Relationships. Relationships can be a great stressor, and, then, and we'll get into some of that this summer, and then that'll be a, a series we're going to go into, but how about our, um, our own health? You know, the reality is there's a lot of things that we can stress about, and we have to check ourselves, and, and with having all this stuff on the internet, we can research everything. And that can cause even greater worry just by a simple headache. What are, well, what could headaches lead to? Well, if you look that up, you could have incredible diseases with a headache. How about the health of a friend or relative? This is number four. So, yeah, yeah, of course, uh, when you have somebody that's very near to you, uh, sick, that can create great stress. I mean, when my wife and I were going through her breast cancer uh, journey, that was incredibly stressful for us. How about being late? Now, notice this is higher than your 
friend or relative's health or even your own health is being late is, is probably uh, the greater concern. And, and I wanted to make sure that we had images from our area. So this can happen, yes, even in, in our space. I, I thought maybe 501 would be a good one because a lot of us use that. But uh, being late is not fun and it doesn't bode well in the, in the realm of your work. So number two stressor that we worry about is money. Yeah, doesn't surprise you, right? Money is the number, uh, number two stressor for all of us. Now, before, don't put up number one yet. What do you think it is? It's work. Work is the number one stressor in America, believe it or not. So we've heard things like family safety, appearance, you know, waking up to our alarm, being late, health, relationships, being late, connected to work, money, connected to work, number one, work. Those are the things that stress American culture more than any other thing. Do I have anybody's attention yet? <laughs> so when we go into this text... Would you say it's fair that maybe we as Americans should lean in a little bit while it is a very simple text? Maybe we should lean in and be open-minded with open hearts that God would, might want to speak something to us today in regards to these things. Would you agree? Let's go before God now and pray for open hearts and open minds. So Father God, in this moment as we go into the written word that comes from your heart I ask that as we look at your son, Jesus, and how he handled a moment with what was very common in, in that day is common in our day, is this idea that many things can create worry. But there are some things that we need to make choices over that would improve the quality of our lives just by valuing greater things. And so, God, I just ask that you would teach us well today, that our hearts would be open, that we wouldn't be so jaded to think that this is too simple, but that we'd be willing to hear where maybe we've misplaced some of our values and choices. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's go to Luke 10. We're going to read verses 38 and following. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha had opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, and I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Martha, Martha, shaking his head. Now, in this text, you have certain things at play that is just simply cultural. You've got hospitality being put front and center. Now, I want to highlight that hospitality is actually one of the spiritual gifts lifted in, uh, mentioned in Scripture. It's one of the primary gifts. In fact, in my opinion, hospitality can be one of the most effective tools for advancing the kingdom of God. 
It, it just is. So you have Martha practicing something that is listed as a spiritual gift and is valuable and important. So in this moment, she is now being hospitable to the greatest person to have ever walked the face of the earth. Do you think that you would want to strive towards perfection in such a moment? If you have knowingly have the most important person on the face of the earth in your home, would you not strive for perfection? I think honestly, we all would. If this is your house and it's by your invitation that you had the most important person on the face of the earth in your home, perfection is what you're seeking after. So Martha is not doing anything in this moment by having pursued perfection, so to speak, uh, with hospitality. There's nothing wrong with the motives in this. But this would create and, and, and induce incredible stress. If perfection is what you're seeking after in this moment because you have the greatest person on the face of the earth in your home, stress is certainly prevailing, but there's also other things going on with that. You're needing everybody in the household to ante in. You, you, you need them to kick in to be able to make that happen because it's not just the most important person on the face of the earth in the household. It's the most important person on the face of the earth in your household along with his entourage, which was rather significant. So you know that there was at least Jesus plus 12, right? And, and then you've got probably other people from the household because Martha has, you know, th this very important person. So do you think her oikos, because that's what the Greek term means, household, do you think her oikos is there as well? Yes, they're going to want to be at her home when this incredible person is in that household. So she's got a lot of people to take care of. So she needs everybody's help. Martha's expectations were being unmet by her sister, who would be the logical person to be chair number two, the, ex, the executive officer. If there's the CEO or the captain of the ship, that's Martha. The, the, the next important person would be Mary. But Mary left the kitchen. You see, while all the preparations are going on in the household uh, for providing this great meal, Jesus is teaching and people are listening. And somewhere along the line, Mary is intrigued. And she hears something that is astounding. And her heart is drawn. And so she goes and she sits at the feet of Jesus. Now, Mary is only mentioned three times in the Gospels. This particular Mary. Three times in the Gospels. All three times Mary is found to be at the feet of Jesus. It's a fascinating thing. So in, in, in uh, John chapter 11, uh, it, she's at the feet of Jesus pleading for Jesus to heal her brother. Her brother was Lazarus, who had been dead for several days. And she said, and, and, and she was filled with woe, but there was still a plea of hope that was found in her woe. 
And then you have a moment we're going to read here in a moment in John chapter 12, where again, she's at the feet of Jesus. But I'm not going to explain that because we're going to read that here in a moment. But in this moment, Mary is chosen to leave the kitchen, helping her sister feed the greatest man to have ever walked the face of the earth and his entire entourage. Sister Mary has chosen to leave the kitchen and go to the feet of Jesus. This doesn't sit well with Martha. The further she's working and the harder she's stressing out about it, she keeps looking across the room because likely this was one large room. She keeps looking across the room and sees that while she is busy working to get this meal to perfection, and she's even maybe beginning to sweat a little bit, she sees that her sister is just meanwhile sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is beginning to bother her to the point where Martha blurts out and interrupts Jesus and says something that I'm kind of shocked by. Imagine a woman in that culture, which again, you had men. It was very patriarchal. You had men, you had women, and then children were nothing. Remember that? In that culture, children were the lowest of culture. So in this culture, a woman was uh, very important to the household. But when there was a formal gathering of teaching, a woman was not to interject. But Martha did. So she broke a little bit of a cultural rule. But she was so desperate, she blurted in and does something that is rather interesting. She not only calls out her sister, but she calls out Jesus. Look at the verse again here in verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that she made. She came and to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. That was pretty bold of Martha. She was so exasperated by her context of having been left to do the work that she calls out that Jesus wasn't caring for her and she orders Jesus to do something about it. I think she forgot herself, don't you think? I mean, she's telling Jesus what to do and she's calling out that Jesus doesn't care. Now you hear, Martha, Martha. I, 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 Jesus, th this highlights something about Jesus, does it not? He's just been called out. He's teaching. He sees this woman has been so enamored by what he's saying that she comes down to his feet and is listening intently. And then the woman that had invited the whole entourage into the house now calls him out, accuses his heart of not caring, and gives him a command to do something about a sister spat. And Jesus merely says, Martha, Martha. Instead of angrily responding to her and saying, you have forgotten yourself. But so let's look at how, what he says after saying, Martha, Martha. He says, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. Okay, so in this moment, Jesus calls out 
that yes, you're worried about many things, and this has upset you. So worry is one thing. I mean, that's where you're becoming stressed about the moment. But worry then changes the attitude. Now, I'm guessing that when she invited Jesus to the home, she was excited. She was delighted. She was honored. He accepted my invitation to come to my house. I'm sure there was incredible joy and, and excitement. She rushes home, says, Jesus is coming to our house. Mary, I need your help. And they all kick in and they start working. But worry changed the attitude. Now she is upset. She's angry. And admittedly, she's angry at Jesus. And she's angry at her sister. Just being honest. She calls out Jesus. You're not caring about me. You're the one with authority in this room. You're the one that can do something about it. And you are being completely ignorant and naive of my case. Yes, she's upset with Jesus. And she's upset with Mary. So he says, your worry has led you to being upset, okay? But then he says this. This is the root of the issue. He says, there are things that are needed, but only a few of them. Indeed, he says, one. One thing is needed in all this earth. And that's what comes from God himself. One thing that is needed. Everything else is not needed to that kind of absolute level. But being with God is needed. It's essential. So everything else is lesser. So that's why he says, only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better. He didn't say that Mary or that Martha was doing something that was unimportant. He didn't say that what Martha was doing was not of value. He didn't say that what Martha was doing was at all not needed. What he was saying was that she has become upset because she was not doing it with the same intent that she should have, which is to worship which is what her sister was doing. And so there was a worship issue involved in her service. It had gone from this welcoming, hospitable heart to now a demand, an absolute attention, and an affirmation of her hard work. It became about her. And so this attitude issue was creating the anger, but, and, and, but it was also a choice in value. What she couldn't see was that her sister saw what was valuable in the moment. Mary realized what he is saying, I need to hear. This is more valuable. I recognize it's important to serve, but what he is saying, I need to hear. So she got to a position of servitude and listened and worshiped. She chose, again, Jesus' words, she chose what was better? Now let me stop there for a moment. How much in our life that we stress about, going back to those 10 things, many of those things are choices. They're choices. And we're choosing, maybe, in some of those cases, that which is not as good as something that might actually be better. And if Work is that important when it's merely a means to an end and it becomes your end? 
you've chosen something lesser. You've chosen something lesser. Work is important. It's established in Scripture. It is not a bad thing. But when it becomes the most primary thing in your life that you stress over and you think about, your values are out of order. You're choosing the lesser. And so in this moment, hospitality is important. You have a house full of guests. But she chose the lesser as what was the focus of her time versus that which was greater in the room. Now, I'm going to give you some tips by which you can kind of discern where you might be at. These are just merely statements that could reveal whether or not your heart is choosing the lesser over that which is the greater. Because there are symptoms that are at play. He's saying your worry has led to anger or being upset. So it reveals that your heart is misplaced. So let's look at this. What are the signs of a misguided heart? Number one, just taking the text here. A critical spirit towards others. A critical spirit towards others. A sign of your heart not being in the right place. Even if you're doing something that is perfectly okay and right, your heart, it may not be in the right place if while doing that, your spirit is critical towards others as you do that act. So whether you're working or whether you are in sports or whether you're in the classroom or whether you're just simply in the family doing chores or house hold activities, if your spirit is critical where you're judging and you're demeaning or you're comparing, your heart is probably not in the right place. In fact, I would remove the word probably. It's not in the right place. That's the first sign your heart is misguided. Secondly, if self-pity is what you feel as you compare yourself to others, your heart is probably misguided and not in the right place. Where you're looking, it's like, look at my context. But then look at their context. You see this comparison going on between Mar Martha and Mary, where she's, Martha, who had invited Jesus to the house, is the one that's having to work very hard. Meanwhile, while her sister is at the feet of Jesus, she pities herself to the point she judges the teacher and the listener. Thirdly, a sign of a misguided heart where maybe your values are misplaced and you're, you're putting certain things in your life as being way too important for where they should actually be is if you have a lack of peace in regards to that activity. Anxiety and worry therefore become what reigns in your life. If you're anxious and regularly worrying about your work, maybe your work is in a misplaced value within your life. If you're anxious and worry about your children, now that seems unfair, right? If you're anxious and you're always worried about your children, perhaps your children are in a misplaced part of your life. What if you're anxious and you're worried about someone's health to the point it's debilitating you? You're no longer able to help that individual because you've been overcome with worry and anxiety. 
Your lack of peace is now no longer helpful when somebody else is sick in your life. Because maybe you've chosen, again, that which is lesser versus that which is greater. And then exhaustion. You're so exhausted physically and emotionally because you put certain things in your life way too high and out of order to where you're not able to function in the better things in life because you're exhausted physically or emotionally. You see, I think we can get those things just from looking at Martha's life. She had chosen to do something well, yes, Household hospitality is essential when you're having the greatest person on the face of the earth with his entourage in your home. It makes perfect sense that she would go to the highest levels possible. But somewhere in the line, she chose something that was lesser in the response to how she was serving Jesus. Her work had become higher than her worship. I want us to turn to John chapter 12. So go in your Bibles just to the right a little bit. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Context a little bit here before we read this. Lazarus, the brother to Mary and Martha, had just, they had just seen a miracle. He had become sick, and Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus had been dead for four days. Okay, so a pretty significant moment had happened. And after this healing, this amazing miracle, because there was no doubt he was dead. He had been dead for four days. That when Jesus asked for the cover of the tomb to be be removed, people were like, the body's going to smell. Don't do that. There was no doubt he was dead. And then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. To everyone's astonishment. And the result was many people, at, the, at verse 12 of chapter 12 of John, says many people began to believe in Jesus because of the, the, the resurrection of Lazarus. In fact, there is a direct tie to the mass crowds that happen on Palm Sunday that are the direct result of this miracle of resurrecting Lazarus from out of the grave that caused a swell in the ranks of followers and believers of Jesus, which then led to the crowds on Palm Sunday. So after this moment, Jesus is now in the household again with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It's in their home. So these two sisters and a brother, they're now in this house. And again, the greatest person on the face of the earth with his entourage plus some are now in the room with Jesus. And so you have Martha doing the same thing she was doing before in the sense of her role. You see Mary doing similar things again as to her role. But there's something different. So let's start by reading in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served this dinner while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. So nothing's changed. Martha's doing the dinner. It's her role. She's being hospitable. Then Mary 
took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It is worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to put what was to take what was uh, to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, the large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Okay, context matters, right? So in, in Luke chapter 10 that we read earlier, Martha invites Jesus to the house. She's doing all the preparations to host this large group of people. She's busy at work. Somewhere along the line, Mary leaves the kitchen or the area of preparation. She goes to the feet of Jesus to listen. Now you have a, a moment where I'm sure this meal is being prepared with incredible elation on Martha's part because her brother was raised from the dead. Amazed. I'm sure she's thrilled. She's excited. Just as she was thrilled and excited that Jesus was willing to come to dinner back in the book of Luke. But now there's something different. Her sister not only leaves the preparational area to go to the feet of Jesus, but she takes this jar of nard, this perfume that is used at burials. It's, mo it's so expensive because the demand for it was high. Because it was part of Hebrew practice that you would use that perfume as part of burial. Which means that every family was in need of it, but yet it was very rare. So it was worth a year's worth of wages. So now there's an added complaint, if you will, as an opportunity on Martha's part. You're not helping me in the kitchen, and you just took our jar of nard, and you wasted it in one moment. You blew a year's worth of our wages. Is that what happened in the story? No. In fact, you see nothing of Martha complaining when there was more to complain about in this moment than there was in the earlier time when Jesus had come to their house. In fact, she praises. You see that there's joy in this moment, and it's only Judas who raises the complaint. You see, in Luke chapter 10, Mary's complaint was about work. Mary's not working. Martha's complaint was about Mary not working. And, and here you have Judas's complaint is about money. What's the number one stress in America? Work. What's number two? Has anything changed? In both contexts, you have a situation where the culture has valued something greater than what was present there that God saw as better, which is worship. Knowing that you're with Jesus, that's higher and more exalted. Now, Judas claimed 
to say, we could have fed the poor. So that was a falsehood. He could have also claimed that that was violating the Torah, which, which because it was a violation to use the perfume, not for anything but burial. That's why Jesus says, no, she is preparing me for my burial. So she didn't violate the Torah. So he made sure that was clear. It was Judas's heart that was misguided. It was Judas's heart that was missing out on what was important in this moment. Money had consumed him, and it was even money by which he did what he was going to do later, which was betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus declared this act of pouring worship, uh, 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 this act of worship, of pouring uh, this perfume on his feet as preparing him for burial. She understood. She heard Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. She heard it, whereas everybody else, including the disciples, was missing what he was saying. She listened well. But in this moment, you now see that Martha's service in the kitchen, if you will, has become redeemed. She is no longer in the wrong place in her mind and her service. She saw that her opportunity of providing this meal was giving opportunity for worship. Charles Wesley, one of the greatest leaders of the church in, in a few hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago, it was really important for you to hear this, what he said. It's not a couple hundred years ago, a little over a hundred years ago. But he said this, faithful to my Lord's commands, I still choose the better part. And what's the better part? To serve with careful Martha's hands and loving Mary's heart. See, as Charles reads this text, he sees the transition of Martha that now her service is worship. Her serving in hospitality has become worship because it's no longer embittered by those who are not helping her. She's no longer comparing herself. She's no longer in self-pity. Her attitude is now celebrating the moment that there are people able to hear what Jesus has to say. So here are the signs of a heart that is now in line with what is better. Jesus' values. If there are signs of a heart that's misguided, here's the signs you need to write down in light of this is when you know you're in the right place. Number one, one who celebrates when worship happens for others. One who celebrates when worship happens for others. You might be the one busy at work, but you might be enabling others to experience worship. Number two, whatever it is you're serving at, you're serving with joy. The attitude of your service, whatever it may be doing, whatever you're called to do, whatever work you're doing, whatever volunteerism you're doing, it's now joyfully being done, not being something that you own to be praised. Number three, you begin to embrace a good heart, one that's aligned with Jesus' value. You're embracing contentment versus comparison. You're being content with role or opportunities versus comparing and becoming uh, 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 envious or jealous of others. And then lastly, a person whose heart is in line with Jesus' values is one who's at peace versus being riddled with anxiety or worry. If anxiety or worry is what's riddling your heart, then whatever it is that's causing that anxiety or worry is probably not in the place that it needs to be. Something has become aligned, misaligned. Yes, there are things in life that causes stress, 
but in the midst of great harm or difficulty or struggle, is not worship better than worry? Because what's worry trying to do when things are difficult? It's trying to fix it. When my wife had breast cancer a year, a, a year and a half ago, I, there, there were temptations along the way to worry about it, trying to fix what I could not fix. But instead, I found that I was at my best place and being able to help my wife when I was able to keep giving it over to God and worship him in spite of our context. Trust me, the temptation to worry was regular. And the temptation to become embittered was regular. And the temptation to compare, my wife loves Jesus, why does she have breast cancer? And meanwhile, many people who despise God do not. See where I'm going? It's very easy to misalign the heart. That's why it comes down to the most important thing, the better thing that Jesus speaks to is worship. Worship in the midst of difficulty. Worship in the midst of hardship. Worship in the midst of suffering. Valuing that which is greater and having the right attitude about the roles that we have and worshiping as we do it. Let's pray. Jesus, it's very easy for us to misalign our values. If our number one value in life is work, if our number two value is, is money, or if our number three value is our family or our personal health, but we're not mentioning that the most important thing is to bring you glory or to worship you, then all those things become distorted and can actually hinder our hearts. God, forgive us when we've worshiped our work or we've worshiped our children or we've worshiped our careers or we've worshiped the pursuit of money or we've worshiped for having things. God, forgive us if that's where we've been. Bring us back to what is most important and that which is better. That with whatever we have and whatever we do, we bring glory to you. As a closing word, I read from Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34, and these are Jesus' words. It says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. And all the things he's speaking of are the things of life that create worry. He'd said about not worrying about what you wear or what you need for tomorrow or that you have enough for tomorrow. He says, don't worry. If you seek first his kingdom, all these things will be given to you as well. So therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow has enough worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So you worship today. You worship today. You seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and let tomorrow be in God's hands. Because he's the only one that can think and know what tomorrow brings and be able to bring order to it. So let our worship be first, and then let God guide us as we work, as we interact with our family, as we handle our health. May worship come first, and those things come with it, under his leadership and guidance. Amen.
If you need somebody to speak to or to pray with, we'll have people underneath the cross to my right, your left, and they'll be glad to pray with you. God bless and enjoy this day.